Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from Goldsmiths, the University of London. On this episode, we'll be talking about autonomy after Auschwitz, Adorno, German idealism and modernity, which is published by the University of Chicago Press in 2014. It was written by Martin Schuster, who's currently chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Avalia University in Kansas City, Missouri. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. Uh, on this uh, episode, I'm talking with uh, Martin Schuster, who is Chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Avalia University in Kansas City, Missouri. He's also co-founder of the Association for Adorno Studies. We're going to be talking about his latest book, Autonomy After Auschwitz, Adorno, German Idealism and Modernity, um, which is an absolutely fascinating text, um, a very kind of interesting intervention into a lot of um, different areas of philosophy, I think. And it was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2014. So well, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks a lot for having me, Dave. And uh, let me apologize to you and whoever's listening. Uh, I have a horrible cold, so my voice is usually not uh, not this beautiful, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is the, uh, the joy of a winter podcast, I think. Um, to kick off with, I think it'd be really interesting uh, to give a sense of um, the background to the book um, and also your background for the listeners. Um, so uh, I guess um, it'd be good to know how you kind of came to write the book and what uh, the process of writing the book um, was and where it fits into your kind of broader um, academic career. Sure. Um, I think when I started writing this book, it was actually a, a quite different book, Um I had sort of, uh, before I was applying to grad school, I had been very interested in, in genocides and just the empirical historical study of genocides. Um, but my background had sort of been in philosophy, and I was really looking for a way to, to combine these two interests. And uh, I ended up spending a year at the uh, United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, where I had proposed, uh, where I had proposed to do this, uh, what in retrospect is a, a very cockamamie project of... Um, of looking at perpetrator testimonies and trying to figure out if one can, you know, somehow uh, categorize and systematize the various reasons that they gave for their actions. And I thought that that might be able uh, to be mapped onto certain debates that you have about autonomy and reason giving in philosophy. Um, that project turned out to be a complete failure because, uh, because people act for a variety of different reasons, and really it's a sort of conflation of things that happen at the empirical level, and I think these more theoretical debates. Um, and so after about seven or eight months of really hitting my head against the wall at the museum trying to do this, I ended up sort of rereading Dialectic of Enlightenment again. And uh, this time I was struck by something very different in the text, and I was really trying just to make sense of what Dialectic of Enlightenment is about, because it's a it's a pretty puzzling test initially. And uh, and somehow the whole project sort of spun out of that. But it was really, uh, the book sort of came out of this dead end in a sense. I mean, it, it's, it's really interesting, uh, I guess, that you, you sort of went back 
to dialectic enlightenment because um, that really is the kind of the root I think uh, of, of the book this kind of rereading uh, you give um, of dialectic of enlightenment which allows you to kind of pull in um, I, I guess Adorno's relationship um, to a whole uh, range of things within the German philosophical tradition but also uh, for you to speak back um, I guess to those kind of more more empirical uh, debates that you're interested in and that rereading if it is at the core of the book I, I guess raises the question of of what is actually the core thesis that you were trying to put forward um, through the uh, through the text? Sure. Um, I mean, uh, I think without getting too much into into the scholarship of dialectic of enlightenment, because I'm sure, as you're aware, there's a huge literature on it, and I I don't even have a good sense of of how to summarize the various debates because there's so many different readings of it, but. Uh, but I think one thing that, that most readings of it have in common is they tend to see it as as really bound up with Adorno's other critiques uh, of, of material conditions, more sort of Marxist-inflected critiques. Um, and so they really, uh, they really see the dialectic of enlightenment as being this totalizing claim about sort of material conditions in modernity as such. And I think it's, it's undeniable that elements are in there that would lead you to sort of believe that. I think that's that's obvious from the text. But I think uh, what I've tried to do is really tease out uh, a thread in it that I think is also equally present um, that is just a, a, an argument about agency, so what it means to be a human subject. And uh, I tried to make a, a, a more modest claim, so I'm not trying to read the whole text as such, I'm really just trying to to tease out this one thread that I think is there and that I think helps make sense of a lot of the other claims in a way. And that claim is really that I think they have a very strong argument that if one adopts Kantian autonomy, so this idea that we are beholden to no law except ones that we have somehow given to ourselves, and I think most of us intuitively tend to see that as, you know, a, a proper, uh, a compelling, um, definition of freedom that somehow captures who we are as modern agents. Um, if you adopt that as a norm, then I think Horkheimer and Adorno want to say that what you actually end up doing is dissolving the very agency that you were trying to actualize in the process. And that's really the, like you said, the, the sort of core claim of the book and, and what I sort of build on and respond to from there. It, it, it's interesting the way the book, um, I guess, develop, develops actually as a, uh, as an engagement with dialectic of enlightenment and then taking dialectic of enlightenment um, back to Kant, then following Kant, going back to Adorno, and then because of uh, various issues you, you find um, in the kind of post-Kantian reading of Adorno, uh, bringing in, uh, in Hegel as a way kind of, kind of through these. And I think we, we might sort of take those, those in turn. Um, so in terms of that kind of uh, reading of dialectic and enlightenment, one of the things I found really interesting in that chapter um, was the idea that we need to engage with the kind of um, historical um, specificity um, and actually engage as well with um, a question that you devote a little bit of time to, which is who is the actual author here? Um, and I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, my approach in, in this sort of first two chapters, so the first chapter is about dialectic of enlightenment, and the second chapter is really about Kant. Uh, 
um, is really to try to situate uh, their problems historically and to see how they've developed. And so, you know, when you have a co-written text, I mean, one way to try to get a grip on it is to is to figure out who might have written what, and then you know try to retroactively work through it based on their late uh, you know later philosophies and and later uh, philosophical outputs and things of that sort. And uh, I think dialectic enlightenment tends to get read mostly in light of Horkheimer's later philosophy which, you know, is associated with Schopenhauer and, and fairly pessimistic, although that might be an exaggeration too. Um, but it's very rarely read in light of Adorno's later philosophy, which I think is fundamentally concerned with these questions of agency and subjectivity and identity, and especially identity, a sort of self-reflexive identity of oneself with oneself. Uh, so that was sort of the, the clue that I tried to tease out there with looking at um, co-authorship. But I think the text is so, the way that they work together, um, it's almost impossible to figure out who wrote what unless we have specific, you know, there's certain, uh, like some of the elements of anti-Semitism sections, we know that, you know, this person wrote that one and this person wrote that one, but otherwise it's very difficult to try to figure it out, I think. It's fascinating that um, it all... It always brought to mind, I guess, kind of debates uh, about Marx, uh, which, you know, or, or the... Um, continental philosophers had, had engaged with, whereby you, you do kind of identify almost a kind of an early uh, and a later Adorno and, and try and make, um, I, I think, uh, a little bit of a break uh, between the two. And the idea of having to go back um, to the dialectic of enlightenment in light of the idea of a later Adorno, I, I thought was quite, uh, quite an, uh, an innovative uh, sort of device for reading um, the text. I think it'd be useful to do maybe a bit of, of ground clearing with this chapter. Um, so I wonder if you could say a bit about how we define the dialectic of enlightenment, what it is, uh, and I guess kind of why it matters, uh, particularly for Adorno's later work. Sure. Um, so like I said, I, I think there are, I mean, Marx is a deeply important figure for Adorno. And I think, um, you know, if one looks at Adorno's entire output, you know, he has an immense amount of writings, and many of them are concerned with, um, you know, explicitly sort of economic um, ideas, explicitly sort of uh, material conditions at the very specific sociological, economic, political level. Um, but I think if one looks at his, his sort of most uh, philosophically ambitious texts, uh, I think they presuppose all of that work, but they're somehow really concerned, I think, with questions surrounding agency and especially notions of autonomy. And so going back to dialectic of enlightenment, uh, I think if you look at just the, the way that this one thread unfolds and especially the, the Bacon quotes and, and the way that the text is structured, they even tell you in the beginning that there's a petitio principi there, that they're presupposing something. And I think what they're presupposing is exactly this Kantian notion of autonomy. And so the thread that I've tried to tease out, what would be termed the dialectic of enlightenment, I think is really just this dissolution of agency that happens if one adopts Kantian autonomy as a norm. And what I try to really make sense of that I, I don't think, um, at least I never found uh, sort of spelled out to, to my, my satisfaction was why the dialectic enlightenment then needs to be so totalizing, why it should apply, you know, across the board. And one reads the text and, you know, you've got figures from, ancient Greek tragedy down to, you know, Donald Duck in there and uh, everything in between pretty much. So why is it applied to so many phenomena? 
And also, why, why is it necessary? I mean, why does it need to happen? And I think if you view it as an argument about agency, then those questions become a lot less mysterious because agency underpins everything that we do. So if there's a fundamental problem with human agency somehow, if it adopts certain norms that cause it to go awry, then I think it's very easy to see why it would be totalizing and necessary in this sense. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if that was what was behind your question, Dave. So let me know if. Uh, oh no, no, it, it, it's interesting actually because I, I was I was going to say you identify these kind of three uh, arguments you need to make about dialectic enlightenment around you know the totality, uh, the necessity, and then these kind of practical consequences for our our understanding of agency. Uh, right. And I really tried to. I think one has to bracket the last one in a sense because. I think the way that Adorno's output is really meant to work is you have this argument about agency that one, I hope, can reconstruct in, in the way that I've tried to do. And then I think you have other arguments about the deeply repressive conditions of late capitalism. And I think the two are meant to sort of work as interlocking sets of arguments. So uh, we can show you, if you ask us why, uh, late capitalism is regressive, and it has to do with social, economic, and political structures. And that's a real problem, because we have manifestly regressive conditions because of it. But then we also have this argument about agency, which would be a problem even if we had a utopia all of a sudden. Even if all of those material conditions somehow disappeared and weren't there, you would still have this problem about agency. And that problem is really what I've tried to develop in the book, more bracketing uh, the other sorts of issues, which I think are also there, but I just haven't chosen to explore them because I think the, the agency question is, is large enough. Yeah, and, and the agency question, um, I think, is is something you you know you, you develop and explore in really great detail in, in, in Chapter 3, particularly around, um, I guess, how Adorno views uh, agency and autonomy and its relationship to things like uh, the body, um, to kind of the embodied... Um, experience one has you know you talk a lot about decision making um, and, and you've got various examples around that but before um, we explore that I'm quite interested in uh, I guess why you return to Kant uh, and particularly uh, Kant's engagement with um, the idea of God and um, this term you use, this this concept of a of a kind of a rational theology, uh, as Kant's attempt to kind of answer um, these problems of agency that, that you uh, you identify. Yeah, I think it's a it's a great question. It's something that, that really didn't become apparent to me until Adorno sort of clued me on it. Um, so he's got this this very interesting line in, in Negative Dialectics where he says, "Look, Kant's rescue of this intelligible sphere." is actually his own intervention in, into the debate around dialectic of enlightenment, which I found very fascinating. And to try to really figure out what that means uh, is really the project of, of chapter two. So really Adorno is the one that clued me in to, to try to do this procedure. Um, but one way to sort of understand it out, outside of Adorno's corpus is, is to just, uh, if one takes seriously this idea of, uh, Kantian autonomy dissolving itself, so agency being a problem for itself somehow, uh, then if we had something external to agency upon which we could anchor that agency, so somehow agency dissolves itself, but nonetheless there's something external to it that, let's say, somehow reinforces it, builds it back up, actualizes it. Um, and if, if that is something like God or religion, 
then I think, uh, you know, things don't look as bad. And so that's one way, I think, just analytically to see how, how that second chapter tries to operate. Um, but I think it's also, I really wanted to, to stress that for Kant, I mean, God and morality are A, intimately related, but B, all those things are deeply essential to his project of autonomy. So I don't think Kant thought, for example, that you could have autonomy without rational theology. And I think that gets overlooked a lot in, in contemporary sort of readings of Kant. Um, and so in part, I think that chapter tries to intervene into contemporary Kant debates. Um, I don't know how successful that will be being lodged in a Adorno book. but <laughs> Yeah, I, I know what you mean, actually, that there is, uh, I guess, um, I don't know whether you would call it a, a popular reading of, uh, of, uh, of Kant, but certainly the idea of Kant as being almost a kind of a humanist thinker um, because of these, um, uh, I guess, his, his sort of moment uh, of enlightenment. And actually, I guess, reading Kant and, in, and things like what is enlightenment through Foucault, you get a sense of Kant as a as a strangely humanist thinker. But you're very keen to uh, to draw attention to actually, you know, he, he's operating within a context that is still, um, you know, very religious and is still bound actually um, by almost the necessity of um, of having um, a god in his his philosophy. Um, yeah, really seeing humanity as a as the sort of final end of creation, which I think. To me, is also a very interesting proposal. So I don't mean to, I don't mean to dismiss Kant outright. I just think, uh, in order to really, I think, set up Adorno's critique, I think one has to set up the the counter proposal in the strongest possible terms. And I think, yeah, you're right, Foucault, and then I think, you know, in sort of Anglophone philosophy, Alan Wood has been a big proponent of this, and others, but really sort of stressing, uh, seeing Kant as sort of. Uh, you know, committed to some to valuing uh, something like humanity and therefore being a value theorist. Um, I think all those procedures, one can see why one would make them within Kant's philosophy. They solve certain problems, but I think they, they raise other issues. Um, but I think it's hard if you take sense of, if you take stock of Kant's entire philosophy down to the third critique, um, then I think it's, it's, it's almost impossible to, to sort of avoid the, the religious elements there. Now, what one of the things you do um, in the chapter that follows um, your sort of sketch of um, this uh, Kantian rational theology is to position Adorno um, as almost providing a kind of a middle way in his later work between, um, I guess, the sort of totalizing pessimism of dialectic enlightenment and then um, the problems um, of Kant's rational theology that. Um, that is identified by Adorno and Horkheimer's work. So um, I wonder if you could sort of elaborate on, uh, I guess, how Adorno provides us with uh, with the route between these two positions, the sort of uh, the position of the dialectic enlightenment and the position of, uh, of, of rational theology. Well, um, it's interesting. I think there's there's a lot of different elements there. So let me let me say a few things about a, a couple and then maybe we can, we can discuss some more too. Um, one is I think Adorno really tries to avoid uh, a voluntarist picture of action, which I think you still have in Kant. So this idea that, look, I have an intention and it gets actualized into an action. It's a very, uh, you know, it's a very sort of ordinary common sense view of, of, of how we act. 
And I think Adorno thinks that that is, uh, that A, that gives you all sorts of problems, um, like philosophical, theoretical problems. Um, but also I think, uh, also I think just, uh, problems in, in, in figuring out how it is that we can make sense of action. Um, so A, he's trying to avoid that, and I'll say a little bit more about how exactly he's trying to avoid that. Um, the second sort of uh, issue is just the, the scope and frame of, of religion as such. And one thing that, that I think is that, that has become a, a much greater interest to me since writing this book is, is Adorno's own relationship to religion and especially to to certain forms of, uh, of theology and apophatic theology. And I think there are these moments in Adorno where you get, uh, you know, it's very common at the conclusion of Minima Moralia, but, but in other places where you get uh, these theological tropes make their way back in. And, um, you know, Benjamin is the big influence there, but he also has this correspondence with Sholem that I think is very fascinating. And um, I think, you know, there's, there's trends mostly to minimize all of that. And, and probably that's right. I think Adorno was, was largely a secular thinker, but it's not by accident these religious motifs uh, start to seep back in. And I think a lot of them have to do with the fact that essential to Adorno's notion of autonomy, his notion of action, uh, his notion of understanding how to, how to work through and around the dialectic of enlightenment is, is these sort of sparks, impulses for for just something better. And those, I think, are largely the way he frames them in a lot of texts are somatic in nature. So uh, we, we somehow register bodily suffering and we, uh, we have this uh, sort of idea that it just shouldn't be. So, uh, you know, there's one passage in Negative Dialectics where he says, uh, you know, woe says go. And um, those moments, I think, formally, they have a lot in common with certain religious attitudes and yearnings and so forth. Um, so formally, I think there's a lot of similarities between uh, Kant and, let's say, Adorno on these points. But um, I think where they really differ is Adorno just rejects this idea of, uh, of building a rational theology in this way because there's something obscene about it. Um, you know, there's something obscene about it in light of, of what happens in the 20th century. And, uh, and you know, that's a... That's a tough question. Uh, my sympathies tend to be with Adorno, but there's something that I think uh, if one just looks at Kant's arguments logically, let's say, then there's nothing there's nothing wrong with them in a sense. But I think that the objection really is registered in this moral uh, sort of tender. And that, I think, is something that one has to you know judge for oneself. Yeah, yeah there, there, are, there are sort of three moments in the chapter, uh, in at least my, uh, my engagement with it, whereby... You identify how Adorno thinks uh, the process of things like making decisions works, uh, and the particularly the kind of the embodied and sensory elements uh, of people's uh, reason. Um, and you're using, you know, a lot of examples from uh, Adorno's discussion of, of things like Hamlet uh, through there, and you know, moving through that brings us to a position of how we might think about uh, things like a new categorical imperative. But also, this is all facing the historical backdrop of um, a difficulty of, I guess, um, remaining, uh, you know, in the sort of um, Kantian form of reason when you're in the shadow of, of Auschwitz. So I wonder if you could take those three things in turn. Maybe if you could say a bit about um, Adorno's understanding of how people take decisions 
then you know perhaps a little about a bit about his idea of the new categorical imperative, and then we might turn to more historical matters. Sure. Um, so I think this actually takes us back to, to something that I said I would elaborate, so it's a good, good way for me to elaborate. But um, I think roughly Adorno's picture is, is something like the following, which is that either the new categorical imperative registers it for you or it doesn't. And that means you, you either have some experience of the suffering or you don't. And uh, if you do, what that means is that you, you have, I mean, at, at some point he calls it, you know, undeserved luck, but you have the fortune of, of being able to look at the world around you and suffering registers for you. And that means you can give a particular analysis of something like late capitalism in its totality at, at, it, at the best sort of functioning of, of this sort of registering, let's say. And uh, in turn... That means that, that your view of the world is, is oriented in a particular way. Uh, certain things register for you. Certain things are morally salient. And uh, because of that, so because of this sort of view, then other things light up for you. So possibilities for action. Um, and uh, I think roughly that is the picture of action. It is, it's not a voluntarist one where... I have an intention and then I actualize it. It's rather that I take a view of the world and that sort of makes possibility salient for me. And then based on my own sort of, uh, in the, in the book, for lack of a better term, I call it being in the world, but I don't want to confuse that with, uh, with any sort of Heideggerian notion. Uh, but the idea is really just that you have a particular equilibrium, uh, between how you see the world, uh, your sort of bodily capacities and, and, uh, uh, opportunities, affordances, and things of that sort. And then actions, in a sense, are drawn out of you. So uh, it's not so much that uh, the, the stress on, on freedom here is not as the ability to do otherwise. It's rather that if you are constituted in a certain way, then you cannot but do certain things, I think. Um, and that's for better or for worse. So, you know, if... if, uh, if your agency has somehow been dissolved, let's say, by the dialectic of enlightenment or through, uh, through certain forms of bureaucratic indoctrination or whatever the case is, uh, then you have a lot less options for, for action. And you might be just sort of pulled along by the regressive conditions that Adorno describes in other texts. And that is also a problem, I think. So um, I think roughly that's the picture of agency that you have in the background. And Hamlet for him is sort of, he calls it a, a test tube. So it's a way of, of examining this idea. Because, uh, you know, Hamlet by him, the play starts doing things that seem very mysterious. It's hard to figure out, well, why is he doing that? And I think the way Adorno reads the text is to say, well, look, he's doing that because his sort of being in the world has shifted. He's been stabbed. And so his bodily comportment to the world changes in a particular way. Um, I don't think any of that means, uh, so I, I'm sure you saw engaged throughout with uh, some Anglophone debates about non-conceptual content and McDowell and Dreyfus and all these things. And I don't think that makes Adorno uh, committed to some sort of myth of the given where there's something that is a conceptual that pulls us along. I think all of this is conceptual all the way down in a sense. And that's where Hegel comes back in. So it's a, it's a, view that has many similarities to contemporary Hegelian uh, views of agency. Um, but I think it's also, it's also one that's, that's different from them in that uh, I think it really focuses on 
the form of action. So um, one way to really, I think, understand Adorno's claims about late capitalism is that the the ends of action are, are warped. So uh, all our actions, let's say, stand in a particular means and relation. So we do one thing in order to do something else, and we're doing that in order to do something else, and so forth. And I think one way to sort of uh, bring out his critique of the way things work in late capitalism that I don't do here, but that I've been working on uh, in a subsequent paper is to, is to stress that late capitalism warps the sort of means as relations that, that are possible. And so uh, in that way, it deforms action. Uh, I hope that it sort of got to, to what you were asking me, Dave. Yeah, yeah, it did. <laughs> it, did. Um, it, it also actually raises, um, I guess it raises the um, the limits um, of Adorno there because um, I detect in, in the text, maybe not a frustration, but there, there is um, an acknowledgement that the kind of, uh, I suppose, pessimistic um, voice in Adorno is perhaps not a good place to stop um, with um, with a kind of uh, re-evaluation um, of the idea of autonomy after the atrocities of the of the twentieth century, and I guess this is where you bring in uh, Hegel in the in the final chapter of the book um, as a way of kind of uh, moving beyond or, or supplementing um, Adorno's uh, potentially uh, pessimistic um, reading of uh, of autonomy, and I su- suppose it'd be useful uh, if you could say a little bit about. Um, about why Hegel is important to the book um, and how an understanding of, of his work, particularly um, his ideas about phenomenology of spirits as a text, um, but also his ideas about history might be be useful in supplementing Adorno. Sure. Um, what, one thing that I might um, say first in, in response to just your question is, I think I would uh, I would frame the maybe the relationship between them a little bit differently. So. Um, Hey, I'm not sure that, that viewing um, Adorno as a sort of pessimistic thinker is is uh, is particularly helpful in the sense that uh, it's hard to figure out exactly what what that amounts to. Um, mm. There, there's many sort of passages where Adorno will say things like, "Look, on one hand, one should be really pessimistic because uh, you know late capitalism is deeply regressive, and it's almost impossible to figure out." you know, how we might get out of where we are presently. But by the same token, uh, we can also stress that it's entirely man-made, sort of, the situation that we're in, and therefore it's entirely contingent. You know, is that pessimism? I don't know. It seems to be, you know, it, it's just as optimistic as it is pessimistic. And I, I always really try to, to see Adorno as a, as a realist, in a sense, because uh, he's foremost, he wants to tell you exactly how it is, and then he also wants to stress that, it's that way because we made it like that. And in that sense, it's contingent. Um, and so the, the relationship to Hegel is really, uh, I think there's a, there's a reading that Adorno himself, I think, succumbs to in many places uh, where one wants to see Hegel as a total, sort of totalizing thinker. And, um, and, you know, Hegel is the, you know, the exact antithesis of, 
of anything that one tries to do in this realm. And, and if anything, you know, Hegel, Hegel as this sort of identitarian, totalitarian thinker is exactly the sort of formal analog to uh, all the problems of late capitalism. And that's a reading that I really wanted to, to reject, A, on Hegel's behalf, but B, because I think there are things that one can take from Hegel that are useful for Adorno's own project. So one of the things that Adorno... Um, somehow bites the bullet on is this uh, this idea of undeserved luck, which, uh, you know, in Anglophone debates, it, it sort of comes to be called constitutive moral luck. So the idea that, look, and Adorno always, often gets lampooned as a sort of elitist for this, and they'll say, okay, Adorno, you have this idea that you know, some people can gain this sort of critical insight, but it's only some people. Yeah, and so yeah. You're a sort of elitist. And I don't think that's true at all. I think uh, Adorno does think that there's something like constituted moral luck. So yeah, some people just manage to gain this insight. I don't think he thinks that it's somehow barred from everyone in principle, but I also don't think that he offers you a particularly great way of situating, uh, or maybe I should say, I think he does offer you a way, but I don't think it's been explored that much. And that's, that's where my reading of Hegel comes in, which is Adorno pretty much tells us, look, there's nothing wrong with constructing these sort of views of history in the way Hegel does in the phenomenology of spirit. We just can't see them as somehow justifying what happened in the past. But we actually do have almost uh, an imperative to construct them in order to understand our place in history. And what I really wanted to do was to show that Hegel is actually deeply sympathetic to that. So the phenomenology of spirit is not a totalizing text. And my argument really hinges against, uh, uh, hinges on the very last chapter, or I guess it's uh, it's the second to last chapter. So the transition from uh, the very final chapter to absolute knowledge. And in between there's a section of religion, but I think it's a, it's not essential to the argument in a way. It sort of goes through the argument again uh, about religion. But really the, the section is the end of that morality section that goes to absolute knowledge. And I think what's fascinating about that transition is all the other transitions follow logically. So Hegel is very keen to show you, look, you go from this shape of spirit to this shape of spirit to this shape of spirit. But with that very last transition to absolute knowledge, uh, it's really based on sensibility. I mean, he uses this very frequently. He says it's based on a certain anschau. So it's something has to register for you sensibly. And it's not guaranteed that. It works very different than any of the transitions in the phenomenology. And so uh, it's something that one could achieve in principle, but there's nothing guaranteed about it. And I think just stressing that shows you that Hegel is not the sort of totalizing thinker that he's often made out to be. And if that's the case, then I think the phenomenology can serve as a very interesting um, complement to what Adorno's uh, doing. So uh, instead of just throwing our hands up and saying, look, you know, some people manage to gain this insight and some people don't, we can say, look, we can construct these sort of histories and they can give us insight into the sort of agents that we became um, and that, you know, we might become. And we can do these histories, I think, in more elaborate ways. So this is not something that I've pursued, but, you know, Hegel notoriously didn't know that much about Eastern religions and, uh, or I guess compared to some of his contemporaries, he knew a lot, but compared to what we know now, you know, Hegel has a very simple view of, let's say, Africa and mm. the East. Um, but, that doesn't mean that one can't construct these sort of histories taking a much more nuanced and, and more global view of things. Um, and so I just want to leave the possibility open for, for that sort of procedure, I think. Um, yeah, so I, I think, I hope that 
that answered everything that, that you asked in that question. Well, well I, actually, I, I thought there was a, there was almost a kind of uh, of an irony with the um, with the terms of Hegel uh, towards the end of the book because you use this not um, to. Um, I guess engage on a theoretical level, but you use it to set up uh, the practical consequences of rethinking autonomy, um, and it opens up a you know a, a very kind of almost practical demand in the conclusion um, about what are the conditions whereby we can um, have I guess the kind of the space to think through these issues, um, and you know this plays out in two ways. On the one hand, there is the kind of uh, the problem of contemporary uh, or late capitalism uh, which you know kind of constrains people's um, abilities um, but there's also the other the other problem that um, even where we have these kind of spaces they might occur um, if not in the wrong way but but might not be as kind of uh, as practically uh, useful or impactful as as they might otherwise be so i wonder if you could you could say a little bit about uh, the kind of the practical consequences um of um of the book sure um so i mean i guess one one consequence that i'm somehow convinced by that this is a premise that both adorno and hegel share is that philosophy really is its own moment grasped in time so uh philosoph- philosophical problems i think evolve as as historical circumstances evolve and I think for that reason, anything can fall under the purview of philosophy. So um, that's a way to say that I think a lot of uh, a lot of certain contemporary philosophical impulses are, are perhaps somewhat uh, too artificially narrow. And um, you know, we should be very cognizant of, let's say, Hollywood films, of uh, sociological trends, of uh, you know, anything can potentially be. Uh, of philosophical value to the extent that it helps us grasp our moment in time. Um, that's, I think, one practical consequence. Another practical consequence that's, that's just a little more theoretical is, um, and this is where I think uh, we haven't mentioned it much, but Stanley Cavell is, is a very important... Yeah, yeah, he, he occurs right throughout the book. Yeah, and um, and I think there it's really, uh, I think him and Adorno surprisingly have a lot in common. It's very fascinating to me because they come out of very different traditions, um, you know, Cavell very much comes from a sort of ordinary language tradition, and I think you know Adorno comes from this critical theoretical uh, Marxist German idealist tradition, and um, and they end up having you know very striking overlaps. And one of the most important overlaps is the stress on uh, pursuits of happiness, uh, understood as sort of uh, the ability for our imaginative capacities to 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 have, let's say. Uh, the power, the spontaneity, the ability to propose uh, all sorts of, let's say, novel projects, um, novel uh, endeavors, novel sites for action, whatever the case might be. And that, I think, becomes deeply important, and it's very much, I think, connected to, to the other point about you know philosophy sort of grasping its own moment in time. Uh, if our imaginative capacities are sort of ossifying, uh, becoming threatened both by late capitalism and both by the dialectic of enlightenment understood this problem of agency, um, then that is the sort of foremost thing that needs to be, let's say, somehow recharged, reactualized. 
Um, and that becomes a, a sort of centerpiece. Um, and I think that's one way to understand uh, both Cavell's own concerns with, say, things like philosophy of film uh, and its potential to, to, uh, to spark these sort of things, and also Adorno's own concerns with, uh, with aesthetic things uh, uh, that he, you know, he was somehow committed to throughout his life. Um, so those are the two sort of practical consequences that I, I think I would want to stress. And in a way, it returns us, I guess, to, to the place the book begins with dialectic enlightenment, with a text that is, you know, profoundly concerned with um, both a whole range of uh, philosophical interventions, but also things like, as, as you identify, Hollywood film or contemporary pop music, um, you know, the kind of the, the lived reality of um, everyday life under uh, under contemporary capitalism. Um, yeah, pretty much so. And I think, I mean, uh, you know, I'm teaching ethics this semester and uh, there's something deeply powerful about something like uh, Minimum Moralia as an ethical text, even though it's, you know, quite different from any traditional text that one usually teaches in ethics. Um, you know, it's not focused on deontology or consequentialism. Uh, but just these sketches of life in late capitalism were incredibly powerful. In terms of, um, I guess, developing the book, you mentioned already, you know, a, a, a paper, subsequent paper you were working on. Um, what is the sort of the next project? Is it um, further developments um, on autonomy, um, or are you sort of shifting direction to do to do other things? Uh, I have actually, <laughs> I have three book projects that I'm sort of uh, wow. in various stages of completion right now, and uh, one I'm, I'm really wrapping up. Uh, it's due in a few months, and uh, it's actually a book about uh, what I call new television. So uh, things like The Wire, um, Breaking Bad, you know, all of these sort of new television shows that are, I think, quite um, quite distinct formally. And conceptually from prior television and uh the project it's it's called uh, uh so the project is really called from a vast wasteland uh because that's that's an fcc chairman in a speech one time said that look television is just a vast wasteland for which you get nothing and so the book is called from a vast wasteland philosophy america and new television and it's really focused on understanding the aesthetic and political significance of these shows that are called new television, especially in the context of America. And, uh, there's a lot of, it's just a, a sort of aesthetics text in one sense. And it's also a text of political philosophy. Um, because a lot of these shows I think are concerned with family. And I think family is a very interesting philosophical topic that, that one gets reflections in modern thought and down all the way to Adorno and Moralia. Um, so that's one project. And I hope from what I said before, one can see how, how it builds from, from sort of where autonomy after Auschwitz concludes uh, in, in one odd sense with a, with a focus on our imaginative capacities and, and trying to understand these aesthetic art objects. Um, so that's the most immediate thing that I'm finishing up. And then I have two other projects that uh, I sort of uh, started on recently. Uh, one is a book uh, that I'm calling right now, Genocide, Autonomy, and the Nation State, that really tries to look at... Uh, the role that the nation state plays in, uh, in understanding, uh, genocide. And so there's a lot of empirical historical research that suggests there's a very tight link between them. So the very fact that we organize ourselves into nation states is, uh, is exactly what pushes us towards genocidal projects. Um, so it's not 
it's not a problem, let's say, of nationalism or racism or whatever else exclusively, but it's rather the very structure of organizing ourselves into nation states is, is what drives genocide. And I'm interested in those sort of claims in conjunction with a lot of claims you get in German idealism, notably in Fichte, but also I think in part in Kant and Hegel, about the fact that we, ha we have to organize ourselves into nation states in order to even be autonomous agents. So this tradition is very different than the social contract tradition where we sort of organize ourselves into nation states uh, for safety or security or for guaranteeing our property or whatever. But really the claim is to even be an autonomous agent, I have to organize myself into the nation state. Uh, structure. And I find that very fascinating because it raises all these weird ethical and political questions. If, if that's true, then what do we make of this link between the nation state and genocide, especially if there's such a strong alleged link between the nation state and autonomy? Um, and so that's a, a sort of political philosophical project that I think also in a way builds on this. Um, and then the third project I think I mentioned briefly before was uh, was just trying to understand Adorno's uh, relationship to uh, Benjamin and Scholem uh, about philosophy of religion, about uh, theology and things of that sort. Uh, that's something that I've uh, you know I've written about a third of it uh, on, on the relationship between Adorno and negative theology, um, and those are things that I've, I've presented uh, this year at a, at a few places. Uh, but that is something I'm still working on because the Sholem, the, the Sholem Adorno correspondence, I think is really interesting. I think a lot of people tend to sort of uh, say, look, Adorno, mostly secular thinker, uh, you know, these religious themes are, are not that important for him. And like I said before, something like that is, is somewhat right. But by the same token, the form of the arguments that Adorno makes find their way, I think, into Sholem, or it could be vice versa. I'm still sort of trying to decide. Um, and there they take on a deeply important religious significance. So there's something interesting about that that I think has been underexplored so far. That was a very long-winded answer to, to your question, I think. But. No, no, it, it suggests there'll be uh, plenty of projects to get you uh, to get you back onto the podcast to, uh, <laughs> to talk about. So uh, thanks for taking the time to talk about the, um, the latest book, Autonomy After Auschwitz, uh, and good luck with the other project. Uh, thanks a lot, Dave. Thanks for having me, and uh, yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. David Ryan, from Goldsmiths College, University of London. In this episode, we were talking to Martin Schuster about his new book, Autonomy After Auschwitz, Adorno, German Idealism, and Modernity. <laughs>